Today, we're talking about Crispus Attucks, a man that, like, historians actually know very little about for the fact that his name is so well-known. Sometimes he's dismissed as unimportant, or condemned as a troublemaker, or hailed as a hero, and those very different opinions of him throughout American history are what we're going to talk about today. My guest is retired professor Mitch Kachun, formerly of Western Michigan University, and author of First Martyr of Liberty, Crispus Attucks in American Memory. So one of the reasons why we're talking about his memory and not his actual life is because, as I said, there's very little we actually know about him. I can run through the list very quickly. What historians are pretty sure about when it comes to Crispus Attucks is that he was born in the 1720s in Massachusetts. His mother was likely indigenous and his father was probably of African descent. He was born into slavery. At some point, he was a runaway slave. He was later in life a sailor who was based in the Bahamas. And we know that on March 5th, 1770, he was in Boston and was murdered during the Boston Massacre, which is the event that he is famous or infamous for. And where we're going to start. Let's go. The Boston Massacre was sort of the culmination of a lot of intensification of bad feelings, I guess, between... British troops who were stationed in Boston and the, the residents of Boston. Many people see the Boston Massacre as a key event leading into the revolution. Uh, even though in 1770, not too many people were talking about American independence. That was very, very much a minority opinion. But there had been a lot of complaints and mob actions and uprisings and protests and boycotts about various British taxation policies and other kinds of policies. And Boston was a particular hotbed of this kind of uh, unrest. So the British Crown stationed troops there after 1767, and there was increasing tension between the citizens of Boston and these troops. There's so lots of little conflicts break out, and it just sort of escalates. And on the night of March 5th, it was a culmination of several days of kind of scraps in the street between British soldiers and Boston citizens. And I guess what really happened at the Boston Massacre, as best we can sort of sketch things out, is that a British soldier struck a young Bostonian boy with his rifle over some insult. And then a crowd formed and started to sort of surround this soldier. He called for help. And it, we end up with about seven or eight uh, British soldiers there at the Custom House. People came out into the streets and sort of surrounded this uh small group of soldiers who were armed. I guess estimates range from somewhere between 50 and 200 people. Uh, it's unclear uh, exactly how many were there. And it, it is clear that Crispus Attucks was there, along with a lot of other sailors and dock workers. Attucks was identified as someone who was at the forefront of this crowd, holding a, a large club in his hand. That uh, One witness at least says that he saw Attucks strike a soldier's rifle with his club, and that led pretty directly to the soldiers firing. And Attucks was among the first killed. There were five who were killed. That's sort of the thumbnail sketch of the, the massacre itself. What happens in the aftermath is a lot of uh, publicity about the event. And, you know, the, the very phrase Boston Massacre imposes an interpretation on what happened. In reality, I think that it's a better uh, description to say that this mob of Bostonians were threatening the British soldiers to the extent that they felt they had to fire in order to protect themselves, and some people were killed. But 
in the construction of the, the Bostonians, it was innocent uh, civilians being shot down by this tyrannical British authority. And especially after the trial later in, in 1770, when all the British soldiers, for the most part, were exonerated. Uh, so that was not a satisfactory result for the people of Boston. And Crispus Attucks appears in the initial publications of newspaper accounts of the massacre and so on. He's identified as a mulatto, a uh, person of mixed race. And quickly after that, though, as the Bostonians wanted to really emphasize this tyrannical British power shooting down innocent Boston citizens, they don't mention Attucks' race. Uh, it was, it, his race was a big part of the British soldiers' defense arguments in the trial, identifying him as an Attucks of Framingham, someone who was of mixed race, basically a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, uh, and, uh, and the mob as a whole reflected that same sort of thing. And so that's the, the immediate events around the Boston Massacre. And Attucks sort of has, there, there are two different Christmas Attuckses that we find there. One is a race-neutral Boston citizen who is one of the innocent people who were slain in the streets. And on the other hand, he's this mixed-race rabble-rouser who was not from Boston who came into the town and started making trouble. Uh, so that's sort of the two uh, polar opposites of, of who Crispus Attucks was thought to be in 1770. It's really interesting that from the beginning, there's like two different memories of him. One phrase that I like to use is that Crispus Attucks was sort of a blank slate because we know so little about his life. He's a blank slate on which people can impose different meanings and different content of what his life was and what his life signified depending on what their political or social agendas are. So, right after the massacre, the memory of the five men killed is a big deal. People, they get it like a huge funeral you talk about, where like most of Boston is there. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a day that's remembered for years. Basically up until the end, end of the revolution. The way that the citizens of Boston constructed the memory, Attucks' identification as a man of color, as a man of mixed race, of African descent, disappears. In the aftermath of the, the massacre, none of the individuals who were killed really stands out as a person who was honored as an individual. They are just collectively mourned as our fellow citizens, our brethren struck down. Most of Boston turned out it was the, the biggest gathering that Boston had ever seen, the burial of these people in a common grave. So there was no distinguishing among them in terms of like racial separation. And every year afterwards on March 5th, there would be an event that took place to commemorate the Boston Massacre. And these happened from 1771 to 1783. And even in these speeches, rarely were the names of the men who were killed ever mentioned. And, and then it was only mentioned in passing, is that here's the list of names without anything about any of them. The other people were also, for the most part, young, working-class people, like Attucks was. After 1783, the revolution's over, so the purpose of these orations every year to maintain anti-British sentiment didn't really serve a purpose anymore. Uh, and Bostonians and, and people across the, the new nation started to celebrate the 4th of July as a, a holiday, and the Boston Massacre uh, commemorations 
didn't completely disappear, but they pretty much disappeared. You see hardly any mentions of the Boston Massacre in terms of public commemorations or things like that. It's mentioned in, in histories of the revolution, in school books. In reality, historians who were, you know, looked at the, the records recognized that this really was a mob that was threatening the British soldiers. So but the, the citizens of Boston don't come off very well in those kinds of descriptions. Crispus Attucks is not like a well-known name, even for Black people, for years. And then there is randomly a resurgence where he becomes part of an argument for Black citizenship, for the fact that Black soldiers would serve well in the Civil War. Just He becomes a big argument randomly, I think, in the book set around 1850. Yeah, uh, most prominently a man named William Cooper Nell. Uh, African-American activist in his 20s, I believe, during the 1830s in Boston, where he came across uh, some reference to addicts. And there are a few publications around that time that mention addicts and identify him racially. Nell became aware of these publications, and he starts to do more research. And he couldn't find anything more than anyone searching today could find. He and others saw a usefulness to identifying Crispus Attucks as the first person to give his life in the cause of American independence. And, you know, that's that's a construction. That's not a hard and fast fact that we can look at and say, yes, he gave his life in the cause of American independence. Because again, we don't, we have no idea what was going on in his mind. He might have been just a drunken sailor who didn't like the British for one reason or another. And went up the street uh, with everyone else and got in the front of this mob and was killed. Again, as I said earlier, in 1770, no one was really talking about independence. So to characterize addicts as the first to, to be fighting for independence is a bit of a stretch, to say the least. Uh, but he, he was one of the first people to die at the hands of uh, British soldiers in the years leading up to the revolution. And it certainly played a significant role in generating anti-British sentiment in Boston and across the colonies. So th there was a role to be played there. But these uh, black abolitionists, they're arguing for citizenship rights. And for them to say the first man to give his life in the cause of American independence was a black man was an important argument. And this is how Attucks' name gets a lot more uh, widespread recognition, starting in the 1840s and then really more prominently in the 1850s and 60s. And as discussions are starting to happen during the Civil War about whether African-Americans should be allowed to serve in the Union armies, Attucks becomes an argument that blacks should serve. Even though he was never a member of any American army, uh, he was not involved in any kind of military action, but he showed martial valor, right? He was involved in a violent confrontation uh, with enemy troops, uh, as the way it's constructed here. So Black men's uh, bravery and patriotism are signified by what addicts did. So therefore, they're going to be able, capable fighters and dedicated their lives to the Union cause in the Civil War. Crispus Attucks often comes up at the beginning of arguments about Black military service or accounts of Black military service, and mm -hmm. he was not a soldier. <laughs> right. He, you even talk about like Black militias around that time. They would take his name up as like the name of their company. But again, he was actually not a soldier. 
Yeah. And, and again, this is an act of commemoration. I mean, naming an organization after an individual is a way to honor that individual. There are no statues of Christmas addicts that I'm aware of at this even today, though there is a, a Boston Massacre monument on the Boston Common, uh, which is commonly referred to as the Addicts Monument. It was at the time it went up in the 1880s, and it, it still is today. Yeah, he never served in the military, but black militias were formed in the 1850s in a lot of northern cities because of the threat of slave catchers coming into uh, the northern states from the south in order to capture people who had escaped from slavery and were living in these cities. Uh, they were armed. They would often sort of drill in the streets. And yes, yeah, several of them did name themselves things like the Attic's Guards or some version of that to identify their own martial valor and willingness to use weapons and violence in order to achieve the cause of, of liberty with Christmas addicts supposedly doing the same thing, you know, in, in the 1770s. Getting with, to the Civil War, though, and, and other wars where this argument appears again and again, whites were often articulating the idea that uh, we're not sure if blacks can be good soldiers, but blacks had no doubts about whether they could be good soldiers. What they were having doubts about was whether we should bother risking our lives for this nation that doesn't grant us full citizenship rights. Uh, so th there's two different ways. And Addicts doesn't really play into those arguments at all. We were just talking about the complex reasons why black soldiers chose to fight in the American army after emancipation. The episode was called Why Would Black Soldiers Fight After the Civil War? But back to Addicts. His memory and his name was kind of resurrected in the pre-Civil War era, during the Civil War, and immediately afterwards to argue for rights for black people, whether it was freedom from slavery or the right to vote. And then, immediately after that, he kind of fades from at least the mainstream American memory for a while. Black people don't forget him, though. One of the things that I look at in my research is history school books. And I think these are a really useful tool to understand what a society thinks is important enough in its history to pass on to the next generation. And starting in the 1830s, you begin to see Christmas addicts show up. And addicts shows up in some of these books in the 1830s. One of them was very, very popular. And it really presented the Boston Massacre mob as the villains in this and addicts, usually described as a huge Negro or something along those lines, who was at the head of this mob, basically being the head ruffian who got what he deserved. But then by the 1840s and 50s, you start to see school books emerging with a story that characterizes these participants as heroes, as patriots. And Crispus Addicts falls into this category as well And when he's identified uh, racially there were certainly white anti-slavery activists who were writing some of these school books that characterize them in a very positive way. And that happens through the 1860s. But as you said, after the, the Civil War era, he kind of disappears. And again, school books is a real good measure of that because the last reference that I saw to Crispus Addicts, positive or negative, in a school book came in like the mid-1880s just talking about mainstream history books, not necessarily black authored uh, texts. You know, I didn't look at every school book that ever existed, but I did not find him in another American uh, history school book until 
uh, textbooks in the 1960s uh, in the midst of the civil rights movement. So I think that's a good guide of seeing where Attucks' memory gets erased and then gets revived. The Jim Crowing of Crispus Attucks, uh, just as everything else in American life at that time was uh, becoming segregated very strictly and and opportunities denied to African-Americans from jobs and housing and voting rights and violence being perpetrated against Black Americans to enforce white supremacy. And African-American authors and teachers are left to their own devices to try to maintain the recognition of his name and his recognition as a hero. But one of the problems is they want to create a very positive image of Crispus Attucks, but they don't have much to go on because there is so little information about his life. And and this is the period where you start to see a lot of examples of people just making things up. He was well-read. He was well-versed in political philosophy. He was a good Christian. You know, he could read and write. He was friends with Paul Revere and John Hancock. He was a member of the Sons of Liberty. You find, and he was handsome. We don't know what he looked like, but you can find all these characterizations of, of addicts in these books from the 1880s uh, into the 1930s. So these stories emerge and they have staying power. When you're trying to create a hero and you create these heroic narratives, and uh, a lot of people end up believing these these tales about Christmas addicts that there's really no evidence for whatsoever. Ed, you talk about like it wasn't just before the war militias would be would like have his name, but after the Civil War, black people would name all kinds of things after Christmas addicts. There were a lot of people named Christmas and a wide variety of like organizations, buildings, schools were named after him. Yeah, I mean, housing developments, there, you know, the Attics, Attics Homes or the Attics Hotel, Attics uh, Movie Theater in Norfolk, Virginia, which is still in existence, and uh, community organizations. Yeah, th- th- I think from the 1880s to the 1920s, there were you see, you know, significant numbers of people named, you know, Crispus Attics Johnson or something along those lines. You see that kind of fade away after the 1920s, but it was that era really of the the emergence of Jim Crow in the first couple of decades of the 1900s that you see African-Americans doing that sort of commemorative naming. So all the way into World War I, addicts, that was a name that was Black people continued to say, to like keep his memory alive. But then it's really interesting after World War I, because there's suddenly like a division among Black people about, like, should we be propping up addicts as, like, our hero? It's a more critical view of him in light of the fact that, like, he was kind of in a mob. Like, should this be our hero? Or should we focus on other Black figures in history? This does get, you know, more traction by the the 1930s, say, but it really didn't just start then. As early as 1860, when the, the city of Boston, not the city of Boston, but at least black abolitionists and, and white abolitionists in Boston started having Christmas Addicts Day commemorations every March 5th to honor Christmas Addicts as part of this buildup as the first martyr of liberty and so on. And there was a black abolitionist in 1860, a lawyer named John Rock, who was giving a speech in Boston saying, you know, I can appreciate what Addicts did, but... Bottom line is he gave his life for a nation that continued to enslave his people. So I'm not so sure that he's the best hero for us. I'd rather 
honors someone like Nat Turner, who led a major slave uprising in the 1830s in Virginia, that this is the kind of person I think that we should be honoring as one of our main heroes, not somebody necessarily who gave his life for a cause that really didn't do his own people any good. And you see that again in the 1930s. And that continues very famously in the 1960s when Stokely Carmichael, person who arguably invented the phrase black power, or at least popularized the phrase black power, I was giving a talk in a school in, uh, actually, I think it was in Seattle, in the mid-1960s, where he starts off by saying, Christmas addicts, first man to die in the American Revolution. And, you know, people, yeah, yes. He said, he was a fool. <laughs> he was a fool because, again, the same argument, he gave his life for this cause that didn't do his people any good. There were other people that we should honor uh, more than him. So there is this difference of opinion among African-Americans uh, as to whether addicts is someone who should be atop a the hierarchy of race heroes when there are other people who arguably gave their lives or risked their lives in, in more noble causes than addicts did. This was also around the time Carter G. Woodson's Negro History Week was being developed. So remembering addicts was part of a larger trend of trying to popularize, publicize Black history in America. Yeah, and, and Carter G. Woodson is a, an incredibly important figure in terms of the, the serious study of African-American history in the 20th century, studies of history that really go into the archives and do the research. And Crispus Attucks was someone who Carter Woodson initially was a little bit lukewarm about. But by the 1830s, uh, and especially as, as uh, Negro History Week gets started, Christmas Addicts becomes a big part of the curriculum in Negro History Week celebrations. A lot of these things were observed in black schools. Presenting Christmas Addicts as a race hero uh, to black school children was something that, that Carter Woodson was, uh, was pushing. With Woodson, uh, you get a real acceleration of interest in black history and a real acceleration of, of African-Americans' ability to disseminate their version of their history to their own people. Though, again, the mainstream textbooks and uh, school curriculum and so on completely ignored African-Americans or trivialized any kind of you know, contributions they may have made to the nation, that they, they were just sort of not really a part of the story. And that's the main thing that I'm really interested in as a historian is, you know, who controls the narrative? Whose story is being told? Uh, who's telling this story? Who benefits from the way this story is being told? And the mainstream society was putting in the story of American history that completely excluded black people. African-Americans were very busy trying to construct a narrative that included them. And, so, and sometimes you might call this an integrationist project to simply incorporate African-Americans into the mainstream American narrative. Whereas later black scholars, especially after the 1960s, would go a step further and not just add blacks to the existing narrative, but try to reconstruct a new narrative that placed African-Americans' experiences at the center. It's Afrocentric. And addicts really represents very well the kinds of possibilities of constructing different kinds of stories, depending on what your objectives are. That's a lot of the motivation behind this podcast is to think about the way we tell history and Black history's place in the American narrative. Addicts during World War II 
is pretty interesting because black people are very critical of military service. I mean, the whole purpose of World War II was like, we got to go fight for freedom abroad. And black people were like, we don't have freedom here. Christmas Addicts shows up here pretty much as he has during the rest of the early 20th century as this argument for black citizenship and patriotism. Propaganda. You had a part about how there was a need in propaganda to unite America. So black military service was something that was like highlighted throughout the war. The U.S. War Department, it wasn't called the Defense Department at that time, the U.S. War Department and, and also, like I guess, its public relations arm were very aware of how critical, for example, the black press was about U.S. policies, about the treatment of black servicemen, and they wanted to do some morale boosting. They wanted to, they were, they were actually seriously concerned that African Americans would not simply not support the war, would even go so far as to try to subvert the American cause. So they did a few things. There were a couple of figures. Joe Lewis, the boxer, he was a great, certainly African American hero, but he was a, a generally an American hero, especially because he had defeated a German champion, Max Schmeling, in some famous fights in the, the 1930s. Uh, so Joe Lewis was a figure was used in you know, posters and doing promotional tours. He joined the military. He was giving proceeds from some exhibition bouts to military. So he became a, a, literally a poster boy for uh, black patriotism. And there was another named uh, Dory Miller. He re received a, a commendation for his fighting at Pearl Harbor, where he you know, went away from his messman duties and, and took over a gun on the ship. And there's a lot of mythology that has grown about Dory Miller, too. How many Japanese planes did he shoot down at Pearl Harbor? He might not have shot down any. We're not sure. But he became a hero and did uh, speaking tours and so on in order to raise funds and raise black morale to show that, okay, we're recognizing this African-American hero. And there were some comparisons between Dory Miller and his uh, sacrifice and patriotism and Crispus Attucks. So they sort of come into play there in this propaganda campaign of the U.S. military and U.S. government to try to make sure African-Americans were fully supportive of the war. So people like Joe Lewis and Dory Miller and Crispus Attucks were, were part of that story. The famous film director, Frank Capra, produced a, a documentary film called The Negro Soldier. And again, even though he was not ever a soldier, uh, literally, uh, Crispus Attucks was sort of the first figure who was presented in this documentary as someone that all Americans should look up to. I think that really helped sort of bolster his image in the mainstream. You know, after the war, when the civil rights movement heats up, is when we really begin to see Crispus Attucks re-entering the mainstream culture, especially in schools. Yeah, part of the civil rights movement was like a fight for integration and Part of this fight for integration was like a community-based fight for like education and curriculum changes in school. We see Crispus Attucks come up again as part of that section of the civil rights movement. Yeah, I, I didn't find any references to Crispus Attucks in mainstream school books between the 1880s and the 1960s. I think 1963 is the first one that I noticed. There may have been a few before that that I just didn't find. The Boston Massacre was almost always a part of the, the story of the American Revolution in high school textbooks, for example, but there was no Christmas Addicts. So what you find in the early 1960s is 
the same stories of the, the Boston Massacre in these textbooks, but you'll maybe see one sentence added saying one of the first to die was a Negro named Crispus Attucks. It's a very, very much a token inclusion into the narrative. And again, as you said, the, the civil rights movement was an integrationist movement for the most part. And the inclusion of African-American individuals in these school books, people like Booker T. Washington and Crispus Attucks were very prominent among them. Uh, you might start to see references to Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass. But typically, Crispus Attucks becomes the most central because he becomes an American hero in the American revolutionary era. It's sort of what African-Americans were working for from the mid-1800s on is to have their service in the revolution recognized and their presence at the founding of the nation recognized. And uh, so you start to see addicts pop in this way. And a lot of like major city school districts are starting to get pushback from the black community, you know, outside of the South, which is still deeply segregated and, and black activism doesn't have a lot of headway in the school systems in the South, but in places like Chicago and Los Angeles and New York, uh, and Detroit, you start to see an attention to black history, sometimes with a separate, shorter school book that's included to augment, sometimes with curriculum where there was some requirement of giving attention to African-American history in the schools. And so school districts in cities outside the South that had significant black populations start to see some changes in their curriculum. And again, African-American scholars, educators are becoming much more involved in creating curricular materials, whether they're texts or film strips or things like that that can be used in the classroom. And Negro History Week is, of course, still a big part of this that continued to exist into the 1970s. Then in 1976, Negro History Week becomes eventually Black History Month. So that, that plays a prominent role in providing curricular materials for schools as well. That idea of tokenism is so interesting, especially after this moment where like, you get that one sentence of like, the first guy was Black. There's kind of a new sense from a lot of Black people that he's not radical enough, that like you add addicts to the history books and it doesn't, it's like an over-romanticized image of America's past of like, yeah, even this black guy like was willing to die for like the cause of America. The, the issue here is you know, sort of what we touched on earlier a little bit is what is the master narrative here? This narrative of progress, of triumphalism, of this group of freedom-loving people you know, every nation needs a story that they can tell themselves about themselves, that they can tell the world. In the story that American historians created, and textbooks were a big part of this, was a triumphalist story of freedom-loving people seeking you know, religious freedom from England in this wilderness that, you know, conveniently ignoring Native American presence, freedom and equality, and people come seeking those same ideals, and they're welcomed into this melting pot, this American nation, and then biggest economy in the world, the most powerful military in the world, the most powerful nation in the world, and our ideals of liberty and justice and equality, we're spreading them throughout the globe. And then, as you said, there were some black folks and there, there were some women, there were some uh, Latinos who were involved in creating this master narrative. And, and that's tokenism. But what's really required 
I believe, is a complete re-evaluation of the story. Obviously, this is this doesn't sit well with a lot of people who are very conservative when it comes to the history of the nation and the history that they were taught as children, that this is the story and you can't go changing that story. And we see this very recently, you know, a few years ago, the, the 1619 Project that tries to recenter American history rather than being around the pursuit of freedom and justice and equality for everyone to placing slavery at the center of that history. If we don't take stock of that, we're missing the picture uh, or, or a big part of the picture. And that got a lot of uh, pushback from more conservative sources still being debated very heavily. There's all these state legislatures that are created and state, state school boards that are creating these restrictions about what kind of history you can teach. You can't teach these things that are quote unquote racially divisive. You know, so there's there's been this sort of defensive stance by the traditionalists who don't like their story being changed. But again, fundamentally, I think that's what we have to do as a society. We're not going to be able to address the racial inequities that still exist in our society until we take stock of and really recognize how we got to that point. So, one, like adding Christmas addicts, like just adding the sentence, they're like, oh yeah, by the way, he was black. That really does only kind of forward this narrative of like, America's so great, it's worth dying for. Look, even a black guy died for it. But there's there's so much more to that story. I mean, he was born a slave. The idea of him being the first martyr for liberty in a country where like slavery was widespread, it doesn't tell the full story. And that like act of tokenism doesn't really make any kind of material change for black people in America, which is a big criticism that tokenism always gets is, yay, there's one more sentence in the history books, but like, what does that do for black people? How does that advance us? It doesn't, I guess maybe not surprising, but even that is objected to, if you put this in, who are you going to take out? So the history wars are real. Definitely. And it's, so we're recording on MLK Day, which that's just like a whole other interesting dimension because the commemoration of Martin Luther King also often, it's like presented in a way that doesn't challenge the master narrative. It's like there was segregation. MLKK was like integration. He was assassinated. There's like this idea of like the problems of his time were fixed and we're all good now. But there's so much more to what Martin Luther King fought for that we are still fighting for. He had a whole like branch of like economic justice that huh, just the commemorate how we remember history is very interesting. Yeah. And again, it's it, it's how you want to construct the narrative and what kind of story you want to tell and which MLK do you want to construct. And yeah, it's been distorted ridiculously. So in the end, we know very little about Christmas addicts. We really just know that he was mixed race, that he was in Boston in a mob that kind of egged on some British soldiers, that he was killed during that action. But kind of any other significance has been added afterwards. Sort of the range of what people think about addicts is that he's, you know, a great American hero, or he was a rabble-rousing ruffian, or he was completely irrelevant. Oddly enough, as a person who wrote this book, I don't think he's all that relevant in terms of the actions that he took that day having an effect on American history and culture. 
But I think he is important in terms of what he represents because he was in the street that day with other black people in Boston. Boston didn't have much of a black population, but addicts and several other blacks who were identified as being in that crowd as observers or as participants, the fact that they were there represents something about America, that America has always been a diverse multicultural society. People don't realize that at the time of the American Revolution, at Attucks's time in Boston, 20% of people in these British colonies were of African descent. One out of every five people was of African descent. That's something that really surprises a lot of people about colonial revolutionary America. They think of it as a very English place, a very white place. The fact that Christmas Attucks was in the street shows that black people, people of color, and, and again, let's not just create Christmas Attucks as a black man. He was also a Native American man. He was of mixed race. These individuals of, of African and Native ancestry played a central role in shaping American history and culture. They were there in the streets. They were present. So his presence there is what's important. And it's the presence of people of color and women and others who have been excluded from the mainstream narrative that we need to reincorporate and, and use to revision how we think about American history. So that's, that's why I think Attucks remains an important figure, not for being the first martyr of liberty, but a, a representative of America's diversity from the beginning. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. History is so important. And then not just who we include in our history, but how we tell our history, which is why I'm still out here making We the Black People. As always, if you like this show, keep telling people you know about it. That word of mouth has done a lot for this show. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at We the Black People Pod. And. All power to all the people.